There was a battle in my house every day over the volume of the TV. We have a standard setting that the volume does not go over 10. However, I'll catch my kids increasing the volume whenever they get a chance. They often increase the volume because they can't hear. Now, in a house with five people and a dog, and usually a few others coming in and out, that may make a little sense to try to increase the volume a little bit. Usually, no matter how high the volume gets turned up, though, the rest of the volume in the house increases as well. So the TV is never loud enough. We have all had that same experience when we are trying to listen to something, so we just increase the volume, but never decrease the other noise. Many of us want to hear from God, yet we don't control His volume. We turn up all the different types of things, but never turn down the noise. If we really want to hear Jesus, maybe we need to start by getting comfortable with silence and listening to Jesus. The Gospel of Mark begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes it loud and clear who Jesus is. Mark gives us this statement and then allows his readers to go on a journey of listening and responding to Jesus. Throughout the account of Jesus' life, Jesus himself has silenced those who make bold proclamations about him without understanding who he actually is. It's here in the closing chapters of Mark where Jesus then allows others to begin to say who he is and proclaim that boldly. In today's passage, the major themes of Mark come to their climax. Silence, authority, suffering. The resoluteness of the Pharisees and the Herodians to sentence Jesus to death. It's in this climatic scene that the situation is full to the brim with irony. Not just one irony, but six. Now, I wasn't great at reading or writing in school, yet my profession requires much reading and writing. Oh, the irony. Here's a liter literary definition of irony for those of you like me who struggle in this area. Irony is a literary device in which contradictory statements or situations reveal a reality that is different from what appears to be true. That's irony. I gave you a little example about the reading and writing of my upbringing. And so, in today's passage, we begin with the Sanhedrin. The first irony is the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish group who was the buffer between Jewish religious and community life and Rome, breaks God's law while Jesus keeps it. See, the Sanhedrin were the religious rulers over the day. They were that buffer organization for community life. And they had a standard practice. They had rules that they were to follow. Based on a later Jewish document called the Mishnah, there were certain rules for trials. And their eagerness to get rid of Jesus, they broke all of their own rules. And God's own ninth commandment about giving false testimony. Our passage says that they trotted out many witnesses to give false testimony about Jesus. That's the first irony. 
The second irony is the false witnesses who accuse Jesus of claiming that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days provide a true testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection. Put differently, their accusation and the Sanhedrin's acceptance of it as a crime makes Jesus' temple prediction possible. If Jesus isn't sentenced to death, his body as the temple cannot be destroyed and in three days rebuilt via resurrection. Until the very last words Jesus says in this trial about the Son of Man, which is quite clear to the council, it's as though Jesus and those against Jesus are speaking two different languages. To Rome, the Sanhedrin's charge of blasphemy held no weight but a charge of desecrating a holy place would have been viewed as a capital offense. Moreover, any action smelling of sedition was enough for Rome's judicial tail to wag. To Pontius Pilate, Jesus' crime would be the political threat of claiming to be a king when under Roman jurisdiction, where Caesar is Lord. Thus, this temple testimony against him was grounds enough to kill Jesus. So we can say that Jesus was killed for a misunderstanding, maybe of a metaphor. Well, let's just say that it's actually more than a misunderstood metaphor because Rome itself actually destroyed the temple in AD 70. And when Jesus likewise allowed the Romans to destroy his temple, his body. See, the, the situation coming together is there's a misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he is about. And so there in that moment, Jesus portrays the truth. But the Sanhedrin and ultimately Rome, who sentenced Jesus to death, aren't ready to hear it. The third irony is Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin mocks Jesus' claim to be the Christ, King David's king while their violent actions begin to fulfill in Jesus Isaiah's prophecies about the suffering servant. With all the commotion, Jesus stands silently. Even when the high priest comes at Jesus with, don't you have anything to say? Mark says, he kept silent. What seemingly the moment to speak up and defend himself, Jesus is silent. Let me ask it this way. How comfortable are you with silence? Don't worry, you don't have to refresh the video. I'm still here. This is still live. See, I don't, I don't think we do well with silence. We don't do well with awkward silences. We fill the space. We have to deal with our own thoughts, usually when it comes to silence. Many of us aren't so good with silence, so we fill those long pauses in conversations by looking at our phones, with speaking too quickly with just trying to say something 
anything to fill the empty space. When we are by ourselves, we prefer something going on in the background. Even if it's just simply reading a book to distract our thoughts or to escape the present. Because we would rather do that than be alone with our own thoughts. Because to be alone with our own thoughts is frightening. Because we have to deal with what's going on inside. Our thoughts, our emotions, our hopes, our fears. And so we try to just fill that seemingly empty space in our lives with something. Often missing what's actually being said, whether in conversation or even from God. But Jesus' silence is more than pragmatic, a, a pragmatic attempt to get the high priest to say something, to elicit more out of the priest. Though Jesus' silence does this, Jesus' silence is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, where it says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is silent in the face of his accusers. These men have two different pictures of the Messiah. And he allows them to, to say their wrong pictures. They thought the Messiah was to be a victorious war hero. Giving Jesus a beating and Jesus taking it without a fight merely confirmed the high priest's suspicions that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. See, the Christ, in their mind, would fight back and win. They weren't okay with his silence. For Jesus, being the Christ, meant suffering. We see this with their response to him. They physically abuse him. They, they can't take it that he's not willing to fight back, so they mock him. And after Jesus' statement to be discussed here in a moment, the outrage by the high priest confirms all his suspicions and misunderstandings of Jesus. They attempt to make a charade of Jesus' ability to prophesy when he is escorted out of the courtroom. But all Jesus' prophecies come true. It's a shocking and ironic picture. The fourth irony is the high priest loses the showdown with Jesus by right identification of Jesus. See, the words of who Jesus is is actually put in the mouth of the high priest. See, the silence is broken in that moment by the infuriated high priest. As he asks, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Well, written as a question in our Bibles to us, it's actually more of a statement. It's more of an accusation saying, this is who you are. This is who you claim to be. The you is emphatic. And the blessed one is a Jewish 
phrase for God's name, meaning none other than God's son. The effect, the irony here is to put a full confession of Jesus' identity in the mouth of the high priest. The high priest doesn't quite realize what he's saying. He is saying the truth while completely missing the point. The false witnesses couldn't even agree, yet here is one of the people responsible for the death of Jesus correctly identifying Jesus, saying exactly what Mark told us in the beginning of his gospel, saying exactly who Jesus is in the beginning of his account. Here it is one of the hated enemies of Jesus. The high priest despises Jesus in this moment, is angry, is outraged, yet he calls Jesus by the very person. He identifies him rightly. He says who he he is. And Jesus, now breaking his silence, positively agrees. And he also cites Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.13. Thus, Jesus both affirms his divine sonship. Though Jesus is dishonored by the high priest, he will be honored by God in place of his present vilification. God will vindicate his son. The fifth irony is the members of the Sanhedrin pass judgment on the one who will pass judgment on them. See that allusion to Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 pictures a day when Jesus will return. See, Jesus doesn't stop with I am affirming the high priest's statement of him. He continues, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's a picture that this group of people actually looked forward to, and Jesus is claiming to be the very one who will bring judgment, who will will bring the glorious victory to the world. Outraged even more, the high priest sent a mean tweet and got Jesus canceled. No, (laughs) he didn't do that. He, he tore his robes and asked the Sanhedrin for a decision. They condemned him as deserving death. They condemn him and say, you deserve to die for that statement. Jesus boldly states his full identity and authority. Silence broken. This Jesus, who now stands before them with his arms bound as a prisoner, his head about to be slapped and spit upon, and his hands pierced through on a piece of dead wood, claims that the next time his judges see him, that he will be seated on the divine throne of glory. That is somehow moving heaven to earth to render them guilty. He claims that his weakness will be turned into strength. That his humiliation into exaltation. His shame in that moment be turned into glory. And his subjection be turned into power. That the judge Jesus would judge. And the conquered in this moment would conquer. 
what the Sanhedrin declares to be blasphemy, Jesus declares to be true. Jesus returns to his God-given authority and identity. He isn't listening to the voices of the false accusers. He's in tune with the Father. He understands who he is based on the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. That's why he's not scared or ashamed to be silent in the face of his accusers. And then given the right moment, boldly proclaims who he is. Even when his accusers make a claim that is true, the timing is perfect in step because Jesus is tuned in, not to the voices of what others think and want him to say, but of the guidance of his Father. Jesus listens to his Father's promises to be a suffering servant that suffers for the sake of others, to be one who is judged in this moment, but to come back to life and return to earth as judge. The ultimate judge. The one who is on the seat of power. Jesus is the Christ and Son of God, who in accordance with 2 Samuel 7, 13, built a, will build a temple. Jesus is the king from Psalm 110.1, who sits at God's right hand. Jesus is a suffering servant of Isaiah whose face is spat upon. Jesus is the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13, who will come on the clouds of heaven at the end of time. That is Jesus. Oh, the irony between what Jesus got and what Jesus deserves. See, the story is not over yet as we look in our passage. There in the background, in the periphery, Mark lets us know that Peter is near. That Peter is there. See, the sixth and final irony is when it's finally time to speak, Peter is silent. He's not silent as in he doesn't say anything, but that he says everything with his words and actions that is silent about who Jesus is. See, what Jesus deserves is for Peter's loyalty in this moment. For him to speak up and claim allegiance to his Savior, to his Lord, to his friend. And he's even given three chances See, first, Peter's question about his theoretical and practical followership of Jesus. And Peter denies. He's questioned again after moving to a new location. There's a new chance to claim his allegiance to Jesus. But a change of place is no substitute for a change of heart. Peter denies once again. Finally, others are involved. Other accusers are brought to the forefront. And Peter goes off. And Peter's cursing and swearing. He cannot even bring himself to use Jesus' name. Now is the time for Peter to say where his allegiance lies. But he's silent. And the rooster crows. 
Peter broke. And he wept. The irony. Throughout Mark, the disciples have misunderstood Jesus. And one of them even betrays him secretly. Peter does not face a formal trial, nor is he even questioned directly about his faith. He's questioned simply about his association with Jesus having been from Galilee, yet he denies Jesus without ever using his name. Jesus told Peter who he was. He told Peter that he would not withstand the pressure. Peter listened to himself instead of listening to Jesus. He told Jesus, I will never deny you. I will die for you. What Jesus, what Jesus deserves is our allegiance. Peter's example is a warning to followers of Jesus, then and now, that faithful witness to Jesus is most important in simple, ordinary actions and words. See, it's in everyday matters that Jesus' followers are true witnesses. It's in the everyday things of life where we live, work, and may ask you, is the first thought of your stimulus how you can be generous or how you can accumulate? When you share about your week with a friend, is every comment about your spouse negative and filled with put-downs? When you look at your kids, do you get so frustrated by their actions that you haven't taken into account your own blind spots? Do your public posts portray everything on the up and up while your private searches show the decline of your own soul? Do you claim followership of Jesus while you allow your own pride to get in the way? Do you tell people they aren't alone because of Jesus, yet never reply when they text you? I could probably go on. See, there's a difference between what Jesus deserves and what Jesus gets. And the story in our lives. While this is the case, no one is beyond grace. The beautiful news is that we don't have to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. We don't have to stand in front of a courtroom filled with accusers. And we all know that they wouldn't have to trot out false witnesses to air the horrible sometimes even unspeakable things we have said, our, our depraved or our just depraved private thoughts or even actions, the things we do behind closed doors or even the possible evil that we know we are capable of. 
We don't have to listen to the voices of the accusers. Instead, we can tune into Jesus. Peter denies that he would deny Jesus because he thought Jesus' acceptance of him was on the basis of his obedience. Jesus called out Peter's sin so that Peter could realize he was already accepted in spite of his weakness. You and I aren't accepted because we obey. See, it's out of our acceptance we can live our everyday lives in step, tuning in to the voice of Jesus. It's only when we come to terms with our guilt, shame, and fear that we realize the acceptance, the innocence, and power we have because of Jesus. Peter broke and wept. Have you? Peter breaking is his repenting. He turns away from his self-reliance and returns to Christ's acceptance. While he has failed Christ, Christ had not failed him. Christ does what we cannot, oftentimes what we will not do. Jesus stands in the gap for you and I. He gives his life over and over and over again for us. And he did it ultimately there on that horrible trial that ultimately led to his death on the cross. But we know that humiliation resulted in exaltation because on the third day he rose. See, when we own up to our own sin and our own failing, when we come clean, we're able to realize that Jesus is still present. He says, I am still here. And we remember that we are who Jesus says we are. So my prayer for Generations Church today is that collectively we listen and respond to Jesus. That personally we don't try to hide our guilt and our shame and our fear. But that we bring it to Jesus and recognize that he gives us the innocence, the honor, and the power to follow him in everyday things of life. Listen and respond to Jesus.